Support for WIPR's podcasts comes from Brightview Senior Living. Since 1999, Brightview has proudly served Greater Baltimore with vibrant, independent living, assisted living, memory care, and enhanced care. Find a community near you at brightviewseniorliving.com. When it came time to apply to college, I had well-meaning, well-intentioned educators and counselors tell me not to disclose my status in the fear that that would actually lead a school not to accept me. I felt like I was underwater. I felt like I was moving through mud and everything was in slow motion. And I was gasping for air. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Stoop Storytelling Series podcast. I'm Jessica Hankin. And I am Laura Wexler. And this week on the podcast, Adversity and Advocacy, two tales about turning personal hardship into activism. Before we get started with the stories for today, we want to thank Park School of Baltimore, an independent K-12 non-sectarian school in North Baltimore. So this first storyteller, Maria Perales Sanchez, is a really wonderful young woman. Um, she's originally from Mexico, and she graduated from Princeton University, and now she's working uh, to advocate for migrant workers at Centro de los Derechos del Migrante. So it's a migrant workers rights organization that's located here in Baltimore. Um, and her story is about her participation in a lawsuit that was gonna affect not only her, but many, many people in her situation. Take a listen. Originally from Mexico, the youngest woman out of nine children, I grew up seeing my mom and my aunts stand up for what they believed in. This meant that in our Mexican rural community, they fought so that we had access to portable water, electricity, phone lines. But education was the one thing we always struggled with. By the end of sixth grade, my sisters had to give up their education because of how far and remote our community was and how expensive it would be. In 2004, when I was eight years old, my family made the decision to migrate to the United States without documents. Education opportunities play a big role in this decision. In the U.S., I was shocked. Everyone spoke only in English and had short names that made my five-word name stand out, and not in the good way. In the U.S., I also had double the education. I had K-12 through education. And with that came a big sense of responsibility. I knew a lot of people in Mexico who were also as passionate about learning as I was, we're not, but who are not going to be afforded the, the chance. In that moment, I thought of also of my mom, who also would have been that kind of person. In 2011, when I was the first year in high school, my mom passed away from cancer. When she passed away, it was sealed for me, my commitment to honoring her by achieving my educational goals. So as I was thinking about my mom, I held hope. Because undocumented students now, as I did back in 2014, 2011, um, have a hard difficulty accessing education opportunities. Higher education is still very inaccessible, and our alternative community college is still expensive. But I held hope. I read and reread articles about undocumented students who got into their dream schools. I went to school. I went to work in the part-time. I volunteered throughout. When it came time to apply to college, I had well-meaning, well-intentioned educators and counselors tell me not to disclose my status in the fear that that would actually lead them, the school not to accept me. But my undocumented identity and my migrant experience is so central to my values, to who I am as a person, 
that against their best wishes and after doing a few prayers, I went away and I disclosed it anyway. In the spring of 2014, I came home to my brother and we both together opened my email. Congratulations, you've been accepted to Princeton's grade class of 2014. 2018. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. At Princeton, it was the first time I had my own room, my own bed. It was the first time I was financially stable. It was also the first time where I had a community of socially justice-minded people my age that care about social justice and that care about immigrants' rights. Through the uh, Campus Dream Team, a local migrants' rights group, I found folks that were also undocumented, who had undocumented parents, or who were great allies themselves. It was the first time I was openly undocumented to every single person. But Princeton wasn't perfect. It still failed to publicize that it admitted undocumented students like myself, gatekeeping for future applicants. It also had an area of growth for the resources it could offer undocumented students. So through the dream team, we advocated, we pushed the university to be better, to provide more resources. Most of the times they just overlooked or dismissed our activism and our demands. Then September 2017 happened. On September 5th, I woke up to see then Attorney General Jeff Sessions and live television rescind the DACA program. And with that, jeopardizing my thesis research, which was dependent on international travel, I was going to be interviewing immigrants in Central America and Mexico. It also put in jeopardy what I would do post-graduation. I was starting my senior year of college. Would I even be allowed to work? I did not know. It was all uncertain. I didn't get up from my bed that morning. I felt tired, disillusioned. It seemed like we had been working for so long, and this was just regressing several steps back. I came back to campus, and a month later in, in October, I realized I was at least partially wrong. Guided by our Latina general counsel, Princeton gathered all the undocumented DACA students into one room. Basically, it was that, here's what we can do session. And um, I was surprised. Not only was Princeton listening to undocumented students, they were taking initiative after years of activism in the student campus. So they said, well, as an institution, we can sue the Trump administration over the rescission of DACA, and students can join anonymously if they would like. But there are risks. Immediately, in my heart, I knew the decision. But I knew the risk would implicate my family. They could be, there will be publicity, and they will become targets for deportation. Several of my family members had no protection at all, no status. So I called my dad, and I called my sisters, and I told them, about this and what I wanted to do, but mostly I wanted to hear from them. They said, mostly all of them said, don't be scared, we're gonna keep fighting and we're here to support you. So I sent them the email response. And that guy wasn't perfect, it was never a perfect policy, but this was about us having a say in the decisions that directly impacted us. Immediately I get a call from the firm that was leading the efforts. And they said, they reiterate, you do know you can be anonymous, but in your email you say you want your full name. I said, well, if my family is willing to risk it all so that I participate in this lawsuit and in this fight, I want to risk it all too. 
McShirt. My name is Maria de la Cruz Perales Sanchez. Long, long. But it included my mom's maiden name. And if it wasn't for my mom, I wouldn't even be in the stage or in that fight. It's been, um, it might be a couple months until we hear the decision from the Supreme Court that would dictate the future of the program. In this past two years, I've seen xenophobic attack against xenophobic attack. But at the same time, I've also seen the resiliency, the relentless drive, the faith of the community of migrants around me. We have mobilized outside the Supreme Court, alongside TPS and Central American holders. And the participation in this lawsuit is just one another avenue in which we're fighting. Institutions may fail us. They can and they will. But I believe that our community won't. My story is just one of many, so you will keep hearing from us. And when you do, be ready to stand up and be a good ally. Thank you. So what I like about Maria's story is, aside from just the general inspiration any, that you feel anytime anyone turns a personal hardship into a cause for helping others, is just the complexity that we get invited into of, like, she really has to ask her parents, uh, her mother, her family, like, is this okay if I do this? Because she knows she's putting them at risk. And so that, um, that push and pull that people in, in Maria's position feel where they want to advocate, they want to help, but they also need to protect the people closest to them from the liability they would, they would incur by being exposed, right? Right. And just how hard that is, is a position to occupy. Yeah. So yeah, it's all about the focus being on the family, not just on her. Yeah. The impact. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, before we get to the next story for today, we want to thank Golden West, a vegan Southwestern restaurant on the Avenue in Hamden. Please support them. And Baltimore Magazine online. You can find them um, at baltimoremagazine.com and you can find them on the newsstand and support them as well. They've been a great supporter of the Soup Podcast. Okay, so the second storyteller um, is Andrea Chambly. She is the widow of John McNamara, who was one of five journalists killed in the Annapolis Capitol Gazette mass shootings of 2018. Uh, she completed his 13-year project, a book that he um, was working on before his untimely death titled The Capital of Basketball. And um, she's an attorney for the FDA and an associate adjunct professor at GW, George Washington School of Medicine and Public Health. And here is her story of turning adversity into advocacy. So June 28th, 2018 was a beautiful day. It was about 83 degrees, not a cloud in the sky. I had just finished my lunchtime workout and I took my laptop to the cafeteria patio at work and popped it open and started catching up on those emails that always seem to come in the minute you step away from your computer. And it didn't take long before I started getting messages from friends. Are you okay? I said I was. 
somebody else said, where does John work again? And I told him. And the third message was, what's going on in Annapolis? Well, that made me flip my screen and Google Annapolis in the news. And that's when I saw the helicopter footage. I saw the police tape. I saw the journalists coming out of the newsroom with their hands over their head. And I looked for John's blue shirt, but it was too far away. I wasn't sure if I could see him. So I froze for a moment, and then I slammed my computer shut, and I sprinted toward my car. But that was when the waiting began. I got 13 calls from television stations asking me for a comment. And I said, a comment on what? At 10.15 p.m., the police showed up at my door, but by then... I knew it didn't take eight hours to give you good news. My husband of 33 years, John McNamara, didn't make it out of the newsroom that day. And I felt like I was underwater. I felt like I was moving through mud and everything was in slow motion. And I was gasping for air. I suppose I identified his body. I suppose I planned his memorial. I suppose I picked out his urn. I got a call from the Moms Demand Action volunteers that asked me what I needed, and I didn't know. We were supposed to leave for vacation, so I had to change my outgoing message, my cheery one, to a more somber one, and I just rattled around the house, moving through mud, gasping for air. I shuddered every time I went by his den, but the urn needed to go somewhere, and I thought I would go in there and see where I might put it. And I pushed open the door, And that's when I saw the boxes of his research on high school basketball. It was three big boxes organized by year and by school and by coach and by player. Adrian Dantley and Danny Ferry and Morgan Wooten and all these great players I had watched with him. And I went to his computer and opened it up, and I found his manuscript. And I got into his contacts, and I just started calling, and I asked people to help me. I asked everybody I knew and people I didn't know. I identified the pictures he wanted to use, and I found a publisher, and I got a cover design, and I found a distributor, and the book is out there. And the Moms Demand Action called me and asked me what I want, and this time... I told them I knew what I needed. I needed to do something. I'm responsible for John's legacy now. And every time I went to talk about John and his book, I talked about gun violence. And every time I talked about gun violence, I talked about John. 
and I wrote. I wrote letters to the editor. I spoke. I went on this little crazy local book tour. Uh, And I started testifying before the Maryland House and Senate for bills that would make gun violence more preventable. And the gun extremists didn't like me very much. Even one of the Maryland senators, a Democrat from Baltimore, ended up refusing to let one of the bills even reach the floor for a vote. And I got accepted into a program for women who want to run in Maryland. And I told him, and I said I was going to run against him in the next election. And he resigned with two years left in his, in his term. <laughs> and they replaced him with a wonderful woman who's helping keep more Marylanders alive. But the gun violence extremists, they still don't like me. They posted my address on their Facebook page. They showed up at my house. They tried to break in. I told them they can have my 10-year-old TV and my 8-year-old computer if they really want. But they couldn't get in. They mail me things to my house, these pictures of men in tactical gear with guns pointed at me. They show up at the hearings where I'm testifying, and they take my picture so they can post it and make fun of me. They follow me to my car at the end of my testimony. I found out what they like to do is they like to follow people like me and scare us and annoy us and make us cry and make us yell at them. And then they can say, see, she's hysterical. They only show the video part where we're mad at them. They don't show what they did to make us mad. And I don't know why I didn't cry. I didn't get mad. I turned around and I looked them in the eye and I said, what do you think you're going to do to me? Murder my family? (laughs) Somebody beat you to it. I'm not going anywhere. And that's when I realized I am not going anywhere. Thank you. I think Andrea does such a good job of capturing the early stages of grief and the surreal nature of shock and um, just the experience of being thrust into this spotlight um, by your private sorrow. You're now you now part of an issue, right? The gun gun control issue and just how strange it is to find yourself in a position where you can do some good, but you never wanted to be, you know, you know, it's a club you never wanted to be part of, I think, as, as she mentions in the story. But I was happy to see that she's actually part of the newest class of female candidates for office that are going to get training through Emerge Maryland, which is a great 
training program to help people run for office. And so I'm really excited to see what Andrea does with that training and what, you know, what she's up to in terms of running for public office. That's amazing. Yeah, I would, I, she has my vote. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, because she's, um, she's just so strong and so knowledgeable at this point and um, has really turned something that could have, you know, taken her down into a superpower. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Before yeah. we get out of here this week, we want to thank the Wine Source for being a great supporter of the podcast. You can find them on Elm Avenue in Hamden. I want to thank Maureen Harvey for producing the podcast. You can find us at stoopstorytelling.com and find our podcast wherever you get your audio content. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here soon. <laughs>